Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate with your host, broker associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher. Hi, this is John Christopher for Real Life, and believe it or not, it's July 4th weekend, so let's celebrate and come together, and today we're coming together with one of the top producers of West of the Canal, Deirdre DeVita. Happy July 4th, Deirdre. Thank you very much. Happy July 4th to you. You got it. You know, I was just thinking of something. Are you going out to watch the fireworks, and where are you going? Yes, I have a top secret uh, viewing (laughs) position, which is on a, on a golf course behind a shrub. Wow. Awesome. And you really get to see him from there, right? Yeah, it's beautiful because it's all open and it's it's beautiful. Oh, God. Yeah, it sounds great. OK, so let me uh, let's let's talk a little r- real estate. Um, you know, we've been living in a topsy turvy real estate time. But before I ask you my first question, let's clarify for our listeners who may not be familiar. What is west of the canal? <laughs> Well, it is a large territory uh, comprised of a good chunk of Southampton Town. Southampton Town uh, begins in Eastport, New York, and goes through Remsenburg, West Hampton, West Hampton Beach, Quag, Quayog, East Quag, Hampton Bays. All of those hamlets are west of the Shinnecock Canal. Wow. And that's a, a, an extensive territory for you, right? Yes, it is. And it's, it's an action-packed territory. Fantastic. We get a very high volume of sales here compared to other parts of the Hamptons, um, in part because it's so large and in part because uh, the prices are lower than east of the canal. Interesting. Okay. So we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, have you had any owners call you saying, you know, Deirdre, I've rented for the past 10 years in a row, and this is the first time I have it. So what are your thoughts on the rental market? Yeah, we're seeing a very strange rental market and way more rentals uh, posting daily still than um, we have uh, tenants to for. Um, There are a couple of explanations for this, but uh, I'll give you them briefly. One is that many people who were out here super grateful to have those rentals for the past couple of years now may think that they're able to travel and, you know, spend some time in a different place for the summer. So we're not seeing all the same people coming back. Another thing is that many tenants who were in kind of crisis mode looking for rentals during the pandemic, especially in the year 2020, um, never wanted to be in that position again. So they went ahead and bought properties. And um, so, and this is a, this is a two-sided situation because so they're no longer tenants because they bought something and now they want to travel. So they want to rent out their houses. So it's like a double hit. Right, right. That's interesting. Um, question, uh, full-time rentals, are they still a rare commodity west of the canal? Uh, they're a rare commodity from, from everywhere as far as, I, as far as I know. It's very hard to find um, you know, like a starter level year-round rental here. Right. So, okay, let's talk about sales. So inventory is still at an at a, uh, all-time low. Have you had any owners reach out to you and, and say they'd like to put their house on the market if they got X amount as a price? And you know, X amount as a price is not happening, even if 
in this uh, hot market. What do you say to them? <laughs> you know what? I have changed my tune on this because normally I'm good at saying no to something that I think is unreasonable, but it's happened to me so many times over the course of this pandemic cycle that um, the market has come up to a number that I had thought was really ambitious that I now tell people, look, um, unless it's uber pie in the sky, let's, let's give it a try and see what happens. But, you know, if we don't get traction, um, you know, we'll, we'll address that. Right. So how do you um, price a house? Okay. Based upon that, it's rising so quickly. And if you have comps from six months, maybe a year ago, they, they, they seem irrelevant. Um, How do you do that? How do you come up with pricing? Yeah. I still look back at least six months. And if I have enough data within that time, I'll, I will only use that versus a full year. Um, so many properties are so distinctive here that you have to kind of dig around to get real relevant comps. But what I do now is I, I show them to my sellers chronologically or reverse chronologically, like the most recent down to the eldest. And um, it's fascinating to see the change, hmm. even in a six month period. Right, 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 right. You know, um, you read in uh, various uh, articles that some people are saying that we're going into a slow, slow, uh, slowdown in the market. Do you think that's mm-hmm. uh, happening? It's really tough to say. You know, my crystal yeah, ball is, markets, is um, like in the shop know, Houston, getting repaired Austin. right now. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> sorry, we were talking over each other. No, my crystal ball is in the in the repair shop. <laughs> but um, what I'm saying to my clients is, we've just been through an historically. Uh, great uh, appreciation of value for their property. And we were there now. We're still at that height at this very moment. But we don't know what's happening in the future. And a lot of indicators, you know, would point to, I don't think there's going to be a giant downturn from a price standpoint, but a slowdown or a tempering of, of, of these prices, because then this kind of appreciation is not sustainable. Right, right. You know, at, in some of the articles, they're saying, okay, it used to be that the house would uh, um, be in, not in contract, but have an offer and acceptance within three hours for some markets. And now that's maybe extended to two or three days. So but consider that a slowdown. I know that's so different for us because as you know, you know, our tip, we like to ask for a listing agreement to be six months to a year long because it sometimes takes that long in a normal market to sell because we're in such a discretionary uh, environment. You know, it's not an urgent matter for a lot of our buyers. Right, right. That is so true. Um, so let's say you now you've priced the house correctly and you have multiple bids. What do you advise your uh, owner? Yeah, I've been doing this be, even before going out with a listing, giving them, setting their expectations so that in case we encounter that, we have a plan in place. Um, it's happening a lot when things are priced right, which is exactly the formula to get you know a good sale done. Um, what I do now is I say to all parties concerned, the other brokers that I'm working with and any buyers that come my way, um, we are going to give this property exposure to the market. You know, we need to give it exposure to get market price. So we will not be responding to offers for the next, whatever, week or 10 days. 
you know, you can submit your offer now and it will be kept, you know, privately until that moment, or you can submit it then. All offers will be responded to, but not for a week. Oh, you know, that's a very uh, interesting approach uh, because it uh, opens up the, uh, the seller to more um, opportunities. Yeah, and, it, and, uh, and, you know, it's important to also let the other brokers that we're cooperating with and their clients not feel leveraged, you know? So it's not like we're working one against another. It's that we know we're going to get several and we want to give the house the opportunity to, to um, you know, be exposed. Now, um, along the same line, what do you say to a buyer? You know, what kind of advice do you give to a buyer, especially if, uh, you know, knowing that there's a couple of bids on the house already? Well, it's very tough because, you know, we, I will advise the buyer as to what I think they should do in terms of whether the price is reasonable to begin with. It's, it's a cocktail of what they want and what, how to approach it. You know, some people are reaching way over ask to get something they really want. Some people will stop at their gut level, (laughs) you know, Um, obviously they should be prepared and their expectations set for situations like this because they're happening all the time by being ready to act quickly. If they see something they want to buy, having a, you know, hopefully a plan to pay cash because unfortunately that's a big advantage, but if not, at least a, uh, a pre-approval for financing. And um, the thing I tell people is make the offer you wouldn't regret losing the property at. Everyone has their own level at which something is appealing. And then there's a certain point at which it's not appealing anymore. And I say, if you read the newspaper tomorrow, you saw it sold for $9.99, you know, would you be would you be sad, like, oh, I should have gotten it? Or would you be saying, good, I would never have bought that at that number? Right. That is good advice. It's a way to kind of gauge it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you ever recommend escalation clauses? Yes. I've been deploying those a lot this past couple of years, and I found them to be quite effective. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> Does the uh, I usually wait? The I usually wait. Okay, I'm going to stop at this point, or they just say, "Just go for it." What's been no? Response? Pretty much everyone's going to put a cap on it, um, but it gives them. It, it, you know, for those buyers who've been in a bidding war that had many rounds, or who have been in a bidding war before, they they don't want to be feeling like everything's just getting uh, spirally bid up. So that's an excellent tool to make them feel like they're not going to be way over the highest offer. They're going to be an increment that they define over the highest offer. Right, right. Up to a certain point. Interesting. Okay. So you, you have you seen a shift in buyers once since uh, many uh, people can work at home remotely? Yes. It's a totally different world. Hmm. You can say Buyers that. and yeah. renters. Buyers and renters. Right. You know, it's a hybrid lifestyle, which I think is is one of the silver linings of the whole pandemic. I think that people reassessed their lifestyle and um, shifted to making it more balanced and it's making them happy and productive. And it's 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 filled our area with a more, you know, vibrant crowd because we have more people here all the time. Yeah. You remember the days when it used to be. uh after uh, Labor Day was Tumbleweed Tuesday. And I yes. haven't seen Tumbleweed Tuesday for a long time. 
<laughs> no, you can't get a parking spot on Tumbleweed Tuesday anymore. <laughs> exactly. That's that's when you thought you could get one, you know. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, now, the rates have gone up. I mean, I, I just uh, saw the rates like at six and a quarter, um, which has that had any effect on, on the market, on your market? Yeah, it's interesting. It has two effects. For those who are reaching to get a property, you know, and they need financing to purchase it, it's obviously a big consideration because they're going to get less house for their money all of a sudden. Um, so that's that's one, one, one angle. However, a lot of people buying properties out here can afford to pay cash and they use a mortgage if it's a better you know, a better arrangement for them between the whatever portfolio they have of assets and um, cash. So for those people, the rates going up is a, is a catalyst to um, take action sooner rather than later. Right. Okay. Uh, 15 seconds. How do you see the market if you had that crystal ball <laughs> fixed for the rest? Yeah, of I, really, I got to get that. Got to get that back from shop. I, I think that... Um, I think it's going to, I think it's going to, I think it's going to slow down. And I think people are going to start to take a deep breath and reassess. I have several buyers who have um, called it quits because they've just been beaten up by trying to buy stuff. Hmm. Interesting. And they're going to wait till things just, you know, stabilize a little. Right. I hate to uh, interrupt, uh, but we've got to jump. So if someone had uh, more questions for you, how could they reach you? They can reach me at Deirdre DeVita, Deirdre.DeVita at Sotheby's.Realty. That, that's excellent. Excellent. Okay. Deirdre DeVita, as always, it's a pleasure having you on. And this is John Christopher for Real Life, broadcasting from the vibrant village of Southampton, New York, on the only NPR station on Long Island, WLIW 88.3 FM. Please stay where you are, since we'll be right back with Ralph Pacifico of Pacifico Engineering. Hi, this is John Christopher, and welcome back to Real Life. Today, I have as my guest a very knowledgeable person when it comes to IA systems, or formerly known as innovative alternative on-site wastewater treatment systems. And that gentleman is Ralph Pacifico of Pacifico Engineering. Hey, Ralph, how are you? Oh, I'm very good today, John. How are you? Great. <clears throat> That's a lot of words for a, a wastewater system, isn't it? Yes, it is. But they pack a lot in there. So <laughs> I'm sure they And then you're going to you tell know. us what that is. So yes. Let me, let me ask you my first question is... Uh, what happened in 2017 when Suffolk County updated its wastewater management codes? So back in 2017, like you said, uh, Suffolk County updated the codes for wastewater management. So what happened before that, since 1973, up until 2017, pretty much the same code was in effect, which required new construction and renovations to get septic systems installed. In 2017, uh, after they had done a lot of testing and evaluation, they allowed the use of these innovative and alternative 
on-site wastewater treatment systems. I'm just going to refer to them as IA systems, okay. but sometimes they're referred to commonly as the new low nitrogen septic systems. So that way. Right. So, so they allowed use of it. Um, they didn't mandate use, um, but at the time, then the town started getting involved and the individual town environmental departments, and they would determine when you were quite were required to install these systems. To install it. So give us a little history uh, lesson here of what happened prior to this uh, code revision. Okay, yeah, before like this- Wild West with the septic systems, right? Yeah, so, so if you look at Long Island, you know, we're an island, great, beautiful right. area, surrounded by water. Um, it's been under a lot of development. There's a desirable place to be out here. Um, and, and um, you know, with that, if you look at it, you know, prior to 1973, there were no wastewater codes per se. So most people built cesspools. They basically put a hole in the ground and whatever came out of your house, wastewater went in there. Um, you know, solids and liquids went in there. Um, then, um, you know, these were systems that they would clog up after a while. They, they need a lot of maintenance. Um, then in 1973, they put into affect codes that required septic systems. That added basically a component which would separate the solids from the liquids. And then the solids would stay in a tank and then the liquids would flow into a what's called a leaching system and then flow back into the ground. Right. Now with that, the septic systems did not do any processing other than separation of solids from liquids. So um, then, uh, what happens is there's a lot of nitrogen introduced and the nitrogen um, has become a big problem on Long Island. There are really two main sources of nitrogen. One is the septic systems and the other is um, fertilizers that are used. And they generally tend to end up going out to the open waters and causing problems. So um, nitrogen is basically a fertilizer, what it would do, um, it will travel underground, come out in the water, and it would promote an algae growth. You know, if you've ever heard of the brown tides or the red tides, mm -hmm. that's algae. And what happens is um, the algae, it grows, then it dies, and then it consumes all the oxygen in the water, and it would result in a fish kill. Well, excuse me for interrupting, but uh, that's interesting because I always thought that the algae growing was taking the oxygen out of the water. And you're saying that it's the death of the algae that... Uh... Um, I think. I'm not exactly a biologist, oh, so I'm not okay. sure about that part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's the decomposition of, right. of the dead, but, but I could be mistaken on that. Okay. Yeah. Just curious. That's all. all right. Yeah. So. Um, the, uh, you know, so what they're trying to do is control the nitrogen uh, that goes into the water. So what, what happens, they came up with these new systems that reduce the nitrogen. Um, and they, they've been testing them. They've been used in other areas of the country as well. And they, they came into effect on Long Island. Um, you know, if you look at the old style systems that do no treatment between cesspools and septic, in Suffolk County, there are 360,000 of them. Wow. So, um, and now, you know, in terms of these new systems, there are maybe a few thousand that have been installed over the last few years. So. Well, you know, it, it, it begs the question, why don't we have a, a sewer system? 
Well, you know what? That's a great question. And that's something that um, if, if you're an old guy like me and you remember way back in the 70s, there was um, a big push to get sewers on Long Island. And they did something called the Southwest Sewer District at the time uh, when I was growing up. I was a kid back then. I wasn't an adult back then. <laughs> we were uh, I lived in Nassau County. And they came and they ripped up all the streets and they put in sewers and everyone hooked up. But what ended up happening, it was a um, like a, a textbook example of graft and corruption. And the Southwest Sewer District, it ended up, uh, you know, a lot of people taking money from it. A lot of other issues associated with um, uh, just graft and corruption, uh, substandard materials. and. Um, a lot of people, I think, ended up getting in a lot of trouble from politicians to contractors. Um, and it left a very bad taste. So the original plan, I think, was to sewer all of Long Island. And after the initial pilot program of the Southwest Sewer District, that just went away. And it's sort of become a toxic subject on Long Island, the idea of sewer systems. Well, you would think uh, with this rebuild back uh, that, you know, something like that, an infrastructure of... Uh, um, sewage pipes would be a great uh, uh, motivator for, you know, uh, employment and also uh, reducing the nitrogen going out into our bays and, and the ocean. It absolutely would be. I'm in full agreement with you. So although I design these systems, I'm a firm believer in sewer, especially in a densely populated area. So one of the things also, if you look at how densely populated are, most areas of the country that are as dense as Long Island, have public sewers. Hmm. So when I deal with these manufacturers who sell these systems all over the country, they look at it and, you know, these things are going on five acre lots and 10 acre lots. They come here and, you know, some areas of the island, we have quarter acre lots and smaller. They're like, you know, I, how are you going to, how could how, how, you have not have sewers in this area right. so, with such high density? I guess. So, yeah, yeah. Crazy. you know, when you were talking about sewer systems, I know Sag Harbor Village and also um, Shelter Island. I don't know where else they have it is um, uh, sewer plants. And yep. one of the things I recall, I think it was in Shelter Island that uh, one of the storms came and it ended up somehow or another um, flooding the, the plant itself. And therefore, a lot of the effluent went into the into, to the bay. How yeah, that, that that can be a problem. I don't know if you remember during Hurricane Sandy, there was a sewage treatment plant in Nassau County over in the East Rockaway oh. that um, got inundated with water from Hurricane Sandy and actually started dumping raw sewage into into the bay in that area. And then oh. also caused a lot of backups, a lot of problems in people's houses. And I think that there's a problem when they intermix storm water with wastewater. Numerous, numerous Newer sewage treatment plants don't do that. They, they, they're they separate. They don't do that. Interesting. But uh, there are some very old systems out there that take rainwater in along with um, wastewater. So, so where are we today with these systems? Well, right now, um, they, they changed the rules again in 2020. And now, for the most part, with few exceptions, you have to go with an IA system when you have to upgrade um, or install new. So if you're doing new construction, you install an IA. If you have to upgrade your system, um, a lot of times when you do projects, if you're adding bedrooms or you're adding square footage, 
um, you may, you have to try to certify your system. And you, if your system is not certifiable, which basically means it was something that would have been approved after 1973, um, if you have a cesspool or you have a non-functioning system or your addition kind of goes over where your septic system was so you don't have enough clearance to it, um, in most instances, you have to upgrade to an IA system. So are there grants? Uh, available for yes the, actually there is so systems, th there is um money available from the state and from the county so um it's basically a twenty thousand, or in certain instances you might be able to get up to twenty five thousand dollars depending on the type of system you need um it's administered by the county so you apply to the county but they administer both the state and the county grant now that is prioritized by your location and your system condition. So if you have a failure, it kind of moves you up the list or depending if you're in what they have designated as high priority zones um, where uh, you get um, a, a, a um, you know, higher ranking on the list. Then there's also money available from Southampton and East Hampton towns. Um, and those are in addition to the state and county grant. So if you're on the bay or um, ocean, uh, you're more in line to get these grants. Correct. Well, for, for, for the county and the state, I believe with um, from what I've seen so far in the Southampton and the East Hampton grants, um, I don't think the demand has been enough where it's caused them to have to prioritize to my knowledge. Right. So most, some people I know that cannot qualify for the county and state grant still get the Southampton East Hampton grant. Understood. Okay. So what's involved in designing these, these systems? <clears throat> so basically you design these systems based on the house and the property. So how big is the house? Not really square footage, but it has to do with bedrooms. A lot of people think it's bathrooms, number of bathrooms, number of kitchens, but it really has to do with bedrooms because that really implies the occupancy of the house. So you have to design for the number of bedrooms and then you have to design for the type of property. There are a lot of clearances. You can't put this right against your basement. You can't put it near a water line. You can't put it too close to a swimming pool, too close to a property line. So you sort of have to look at the overall property, what the what's on there, what the owner wants to put there, so you can put this system in a location where it won't impact them, um, you know, and they'll be able to do it. Um, we also need to know the soil type. They're um, basically these things draining to the ground, so you need to know whether you have a good draining soil or not. So there's a soil bore involved. So you generally need a survey. You need a soil bore. We need a plan of what they want to do to the property. And then we can uh, lay out and design these systems. You know, I was just thinking uh, in Sag Harbor Village, I mean, a lot of the uh, lots are like 0 0.10. Yes. How do, deal, how do you deal with something like that? I mean, it's like you don't have much Well, area. you know, they, they, they can be tough. We've, I've done a couple of them in Sag Harbor. And, um, you know, what happens is they, the, the health department, if you have an approved building lot, you know, that you have an approved house on, you'll mm -hmm. always be able to put a system in there. But it doesn't mean you'll always be able to do what else you want on there. So, um, you know, we had one uh, where we did in Sag Harbor and we designed it, we pushed it as far back in the yard as we could, as close to the property line to leave room so they could put a small swimming pool in there. 
you know, um, sometimes it limits it where the property is just not big enough. If you want to put a pool in along with the septic system, sometimes that might restrict it. If you have a very large house on a small lot. I hate to interrupt you and I'm going to have you back because I find this fascinating and it seems like we can, you know, do another episode on this. Um, So Ralph, how can somebody get in touch in touch with you? Uh, especially, you know, if they have questions about this. Okay, sure. If anyone has any questions, I'd be more than happy to talk to them. Um, the, the company is Pacifico Engineering. Phone number is 631-988-0000. Uh, I'll just repeat it, 631-988-0000. Or you can do contact us on our website, uh, pacificoengineering.com. Fantastic. Ralph Pacifico, pleasure as always. This is John Christopher for Real Life, broadcasting here in the wonderful village of Southampton, New York, on the only NPR station on Long Island. If you'd like to hear this program again or other podcasts, please go to WLIW.org slash radio slash real life. Thank you for listening and make sure you have an awesome 4th of July. You have been listening to Real Life the program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for real life. WLIW-FM's Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIW-FM Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at wliw.org radio.